2: Restrictions apply.
1: Good afternoon, Mr. President. Good afternoon. Could you please uh, state your polling for the record, sir? William Jefferson Clinton.
4: Wind back two and a half years before this now infamous grand jury testimony. It's February 19th, 1996.
5: That afternoon, President Clinton was in the Oval Office. It's actually President's
4: Day. And President Bill Clinton calls Monica Lewinsky at her Watergate apartment— It's been about five months since they first met and started their intimate relations. She can tell from his voice something's wrong. So Monica Lewinsky heads to the White House, uninvited, actually. She lies her way in, saying, I have these papers for the
5: president. This was, you know, one of the only encounters that they had in the Oval Office where there was not even any kissing. Um, They did hug, but then President Clinton started to tell his intern former intern, actually,
4: that he no longer felt right about their intimate relationship and he had to put a stop to it.
5: He tells her this affair can't go on. He was actually breaking up with his girlfriend, Monica Lewinsky. She was welcome to continue coming to visit him, but only as a
4: friend.
2: I stopped it. I never should have started and I certainly shouldn't have started it back after I resolved not to in 1996.
4: It's over, the president is saying, until they're interrupted. At that moment, the phone
5: rings into the Oval Office. And it is one of his most powerful contributors.
4: This moment has been recorded in...
5: The document prepared by the prosecutor, Kenneth Starr, when he was going after Bill Clinton. All right, so so now should I just read what it says? Okay. At one point during their conversation... The president had a call from a sugar grower in Florida, whose name, according to Ms. Lewinsky, was something like Fanuli. She calls him Mr. Fanuli. Fanuli? Concerning Ms. Lewinsky's recollection of a call from a sugar grower named Fanuli, the president talked with Alfonso Fanuel of Palm Beach, Florida, from 12:42 to 1:04 p.m. If you can get the president of the United States on the phone for 22 minutes while he is breaking up with his girlfriend, you've got a lot of clout.
4: It's rare that a phone call like this from a mega donor becomes public knowledge. Usually these are firmly within the soundproof walls of the Oval Office. So finding out about something like this, well, it gets you thinking. Just how powerful is the sugar industry? How much influence has this multi-billion dollar industry had on our politicians, on political decision-making, not just in Florida, but across the country? And what are the real-world consequences of that clout? It's only once you take a peek behind the curtains of that power that you can get a real sense of what Dave Gorman, Edward Tuddenham, and the lawyers in the story, and the sugarcane cutters they represented, were truly up against. This call with Clinton was happening at the same time as the case, after all. I'm Celeste Headley, and from iHeartMedia, Imagine Audio, and the teams at Weekday Fun and Novel, this is Big Sugar, Episode 8, The Battle of the Swamp.
6: My name is Betty Osceola. I'm a member of the Miccosukee Tribe of Indians of Florida, and I'm also a member of the Panther Clan. So
4: clear your mind of presidential scandals and impeachment proceedings. Forget about that for just a moment. Now you're in the Everglades, the massive 1.5 million acre wetlands in the southern part of Florida. Betty's ancestors have lived in the area for centuries. And when Betty was growing up there,
6: the wildlife was more abundant. In the morning you could hear the birds. You would hear a whoosh whoosh whoosh. And when you'd look up, you see all these birds, like thousands of birds flying over. And sometimes at night you hear the owl making its hoo hoo noise. You would hear the armandellos thump, 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 like thunderous. Sometimes you'd think a big creature was moving around in in the bushes, and the next thing you know, this little armandello walks out. The American alligators that we have here during the mating season they roar. Just they almost sound like a lion's roar—a big roar, very deep, a very deep roar. But if you were to go into the middle of the Everglades, you would feel like you're disconnected from the rest of the world in this big vastness of the Everglades itself.
5: The Everglades is less ooh and ah than hmm. It's not like Yosemite or Yellowstone National Park. You know, it's not one of those places where tourists go and are immediately awestruck. By the way, this is Michael
4: Grunwald, an author, ex-Washington Post and political magazine reporter, and longtime Florida resident.
5: I've lived in Florida for Jesus Christ. Oh my god. So long he can barely remember how long. I've uh no, that's wrong. Okay. I've I've lived in Florida for 18 years.
4: Or to put it another way,
5: I came down to Florida to write a book about the Everglades called The Swamp. I met a girl And I'm still here. (laughs) So, the Everglades. It's mostly just water and sawgrass.
4: A type of grass that can grow up to nine feet tall with a serrated saw-like edge. It grows in the wetlands.
5: It's this just gigantic shallow water ecosystem, a real river of grass.
4: This gargantuan puddle stretches more than 100 miles from Lake Okeechobee all the way down to Florida Bay.
6: You could put New York in the middle of the Everglades and not even, you know, cover half of the Everglades. That's how big it is.
4: But this flat wetland is super important. Not only is the Everglades home to hundreds of species of animals, it provides drinking water for about one-third of Floridians and irrigation for a lot of the state's agriculture. Sometimes the Everglades is compared to kidneys— It improves water quality, filtering pollutants, absorbing excess nutrients, keeping the stores of underground water replenished. And for the Miccosukee tribe, it's deeply embedded in their culture and spirituality. They even lay people to rest in the Everglades so their ancestors' DNA is in the environment. And during the Indian Wars of the 1800s, about 100 Miccosukee refused to surrender and hid out in the Everglades, Eri Osceola is a descendant of those who eluded capture.
6: They sought refuge in the Everglades because those people that were pursuing them weren't acclimated to this harsh environment.
5: The U.S. Army soldiers couldn't handle the spiky sawgrass. The worst stuff they had ever seen in their life, you know, wading through it was like walking through broken glass. They weren't used to
6: it, so our people knew that. So they hid in the, the Everglades to survive.
4: So why are we in the Everglades? Well, you can't talk about sugar, Florida, and power without talking about the Everglades.
7: Everything was lovely in Florida, so it seemed. The sun was kind, the surf was fresh, the beaches white and clean, To millions of Americans, it was Valhalla.
4: These days, the area is beloved. Who wants to save it? Pretty much everybody. But for much of the last century, many people viewed it very differently. A wild beast that needed to be tamed.
7: There was trouble. Nature was frowning. The trouble was water.
4: Sometimes it was too dry. The water table declined. Massive droughts and fires.
7: And the only moisture left was in the sweat and tears of those who made the land their living.
5: Sometimes it was too wet. Floods killed thousands.
7: When the rains came, they inundated the flat lowlands of central and southern Florida.
4: In 1928, hard rains and a hurricane caused the Lake Okeechobee Dike to collapse. The resulting floods killed up to 3,000 people, mostly black migrant workers.
5: Water was the enemy. You know, it was a constant threat to people's way of life. So the government intervenes, swooping in like a hero to crush this villainous liquid
4: nemesis. Enter the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers.
5: They built 2,000 miles of levees and canals. You know, they had pumps so powerful that they had to cannibalize the engines from nuclear submarines. And they built what was at the time the most elaborate water control system on the planet. You know they really seized control of just about every drop of water that falls in South Florida.
7: Water, once the fierce, uncompromising enemy of this long, wide, low-lying land, will become its greatest ally. The rains may come, But there will be no fear in them. They are the waters of Florida's unfolding destiny, the bright promise of Florida's glowing future.
4: The water was captured, rerouted, and siphoned
5: out, making way for
4: acres and acres of real estate opportunities.
5: So that you could have 8 million people living in this once uninhabitable swamp. The only problem was that it devastated a really important ecosystem.
4: Florida, and really America, was indelibly changed by this aggressive drainage. In 1971, in what was once marshes, Walt Disney opened a theme park. Presidents continued jetting to Florida for vacations, and a local fast food joint, Insta Burger King, lost the Insta in the restaurant's title and took the nation by storm. A sector that economically matched tourism in the state was agriculture. And one of the biggest players in this extraordinary Florida boom time, sugar.
5: That deep organic muck that they've got in the northern Everglades was really well suited for sugar. From the
4: 1950s, hundreds of thousands of acres of sugarcane plantations were created in the fertile soil that was once the Everglades.
5: You know, in the Everglades agricultural area, they grow vegetables, they... It used to grow a little bit of citrus, but it's mostly sugar.
4: I've said it before, but you've almost certainly eaten sugar from Florida. It produces about half of the country's sugar cane. And since the water was brought under control, sugar has become the most extensively grown crop in the state.
5: You'll see sugarcane as far as the eye can see. And since Florida is incredibly flat, the eye can see pretty far. So
4: from the 1960s, the good times are rolling in
5: Florida. Tourism is booming.
4: The economy is booming. Sugar is booming. But as the decades passed, all is not well with the Everglades.
5: They were seeing this kind of advancing blob of cattails that were displacing the original sawgrass. Instead of the low bushes of sawgrass, thick, tall walls of cattail, a reedy
4: plant with a spongy brown top.
5: The cattails were much denser than
6: the sawgrass. And when cactails come into an area, it chokes out an area. There's a one section of the Everglades where all you see is wall-to-wall cactail, and if you drive it, it's like driving through a tunnel of cactail.
5: There was just this really obvious change of vegetation from a sawgrass ecosystem. Um, that flowed to a cattail ecosystem that didn't. That was clearly not a natural phenomenon.
6: That's when we started seeing a bigger decline in the wildlife.
5: Animals
4: started disappearing.
6: My brothers would go out hunting, and it was getting harder for them to find deer. The
5: apple snails that used to reproduce in the sawgrass were sort of crowded out. We weren't seeing as many rabbits. The snail kites that used to eat the apple snails, (laughs) were no longer showing up.
6: The places where I normally saw birds roost and you would see the nest, I wasn't seeing them anymore.
5: The Everglades was clearly becoming something that was not the Everglades.
4: The animals and their natural predators were dying out, and the water was changing too.
6: When I was younger, the water was much more clear. But then, algae
4: everywhere.
6: It's just like a, a really thick foam across the landscape, but a very dark, gooey type of foam. It smells like rotten eggs. It's worse than rotten eggs. It really stinks. Like, worse than sewer. The cattails, the algae, there seemed to
4: be a culprit.
5: And people started to look at those sugar fields and see that, you know, it sort of started right below them and it was spreading out. This was a unique ecosystem. There was nothing else like it on Earth. And this river of grass was becoming a discombobulated mess. For the Miccosukee, it's devastating.
6: You can feel angry, feel frustrated. It could be very uh, overwhelming and depressing.
4: So what was causing this change? Well, there was one factor.
5: The fertilizers that were running off the Everglades agricultural area were dumping phosphorus into the river of grass. Why was this a big deal? What made the Everglades the Everglades was that it essentially evolved with no phosphorus in it.
4: Phosphorus. It's a mineral. It's essential to most living beings. It's found in our teeth and bones, for example. But the Everglades... Cannot
5: tolerate phosphorus.
4: What's normal in many environments would totally upend the Everglades. So with this phosphorus injection, cattails were proliferating, algae was blooming, and the ecosystem was in chaos. Something had to be done. And who was going to do it? Dexter Lehtinen. More after the break. Dexter Lehtinen is an American attorney, formerly a politician, and married to the first Cuban-American congresswoman, Eliana Ross Lehtinen. Before all
5: that... He was a soldier. Dexter's a tough guy. He went to fight in Vietnam. Um, He was wounded there. He still has the scars. He's a brilliant guy. He was first in his class at Stanford Law. In the 1980s, Dexter Leighton
4: found himself in the position of U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida. And he was no stranger to grabbing headlines. He started carrying a plastic AK-47 around as a symbol of his aggressive stance on drugs. And his office came out with a new motto. No guts, no glory. All this earned him a nickname, Machine Gun.
5: Just a really tough guy, and a guy who really grew up in the Everglades and grew up fishing there and really loved the place. So he was really disturbed by what was happening.
4: By the pollution in the water, the explosion of cattails, and the decline in wildlife. So Dexter Leighton began his assault on the sugar industry— But he didn't go for the industry directly. In his mind, the state of Florida and its water management districts were responsible for regulating the water quality. If the water was polluted, it was them who'd failed. So Dexter began concocting a lawsuit which he hoped would put a stop to the pollution from the sugarcane farms. But there was a problem.
5: He knew that there was no way his bosses were going to sign off on the kind of lawsuit he was thinking about. So he continued, quietly and secretly.
4: He knew it might land him in hot water with his bosses in the Reagan administration, no pun intended. But regardless, this machine gun pulled the trigger. Here he is in his own words, discussing it during an interview with CBS.
2: You know, I got wounded in Vietnam, and uh, there's no heroic message there except that, you know, I've been to the mountaintop, and a bunch of uh, subordinate people in the Justice Department don't exactly overly impressed me. So in
4: 1988, acting completely on his own, albeit officially on behalf of the federal government, Dexter Leighton ensued sued the state's South Florida Water Management District.
5: Saying that they were violating the Clean Water Act by failing to stop the sugar industry from dumping pollution in the form of their fertilized runoff into the Everglades. It was a complete shock. (laughs) It was certainly a shock to his bosses. It was a shock because not only was he taking on the state
4: government, it was a massive attack on Big Sugar, whose power and political influence that extended all the way to the Oval Office, as you'll remember, had made them virtually untouchable. The sugar industry operates one of the most formidable lobbying forces in the state and the country.
5: They are without a doubt, the most powerful agricultural industry and one of the most powerful industries in Florida. They have dozens of lobbyists, and they've just made it very clear that if you're not with us, we're going to take you out.
8: It's a completely legal form of bribery that our system thrives on.
5: This is Carl Hyasson,
4: the big-time journalist and writer and native Floridian who knows the Sunshine State and its quirky politics better than pretty much anyone else.
8: There's all kinds of corruption. There's the kind you can prosecute, and there's the kind that you, there are no penalties for. And hiring lobbyists to knock on politicians' doors is not against the law.
4: Lobbying is sort of an abstract term. Basically, these are people who talk to politicians on behalf of industries or companies to try to convince them to vote or act in a certain way. Apparently, they're called lobbyists because they would hang around in the lobbies of places waiting to pounce on politicians and plead their cases. The Atlantic reported in 2015 that for every dollar spent on lobbying by labor unions and public interest groups, large corporations and their associations now spend $34. In other words, the big guys spend 35 times as much protecting their causes as the little guys can fork out to fight for their corner. Lobbying is thought to be, by some, the reason there's very little gun control in the United States, why the prices of prescription drugs remain unnecessarily high, and why Internet giants have been able to sell our data to the highest bidder. As you probably know by now, in Florida, the two biggest sugar companies are U.S. Sugar and Florida Crystals. The latter, of course, is owned by billionaire brothers and Cuban exiles Alfie and Pepe Fanjul, not Fanulli. What's mind-blowing is that U.S. Sugar and Florida Crystals have individually outspent every other company in the state on lobbying since the state first started its digital lobbyist pay database in 2018. This lobbying has gone on for decades.
8: They have Armies of the best lobbyists that money can buy, they've got it worked out.
4: At times, the two sugar companies combined employed more lobbyists than there are state senators. Even in this video, which was made to celebrate when Alfie and Pepe were inducted into the Florida Agricultural Hall of Fame, a fellow farmer let slip how much influence they've had.
2: They've worked diligently uh, on environmental legislation and political legislation uh, in uh, uh, farm bills and nationally and state. And
4: uh, they've just been a good uh, voice. Perhaps more powerful than their voices, their pockets, deep ones. A lot of their power at state and federal levels is thanks to their generous boatloads of political donations. For example, between 2015 and 2020, the Fonhul brothers donated some $3 million to both Democratic and Republican candidates, parties,
5: and PACs. They are an extremely political family. And they're smart. Uh, Alfonso is a Democrat. Pepe is a Republican. Alfonso was Bill Clinton's campaign finance chairman. Pepe was one of Bob Dole's <laughs> campaign finance chairman. So they make sure to play both sides of the aisle. And uh, they've played it very well. Back to Carl Heisen.
8: Alfie could be a true-blooded Democrat and, and Pepe could be a sincere, devoted Republican. I don't know what their political leanings are, but it's it's convenient to have two really rich brothers giving to the opposite parties. It's very convenient for a corporation to have that kind of reach into whatever side of the political spectrum is running the show.
4: Carl has said in the past, alligators don't give to political campaigns and the von Hools
8: do politicians aren't voting to save alligators they're voting to please constituents particularly donors who give a lot of money it's pretty simple
4: now i want to give you another really incredible example of the industry's reach it requires us to go back to june 1972 It's when the Watergate scandal is shocking the world. And somewhere in the background of all this, just out of sight, is Big Sugar. Charles Bluedorn. If you remember from Episode 5, he's the millionaire executive dubbed the Mad Austrian of Wall Street. Back in the 60s, he's the owner of Gulf and Western Industries— the company's holdings include Paramount Pictures. In fact, Dorn was a big force behind getting The Godfather made, and by 1967, he also has his fingers in the sugar pie. He's the owner of the South Puerto Rico Sugar Company, and he's got massive sugarcane farms in South Florida and the Dominican Republic. So why are we talking about Charles Bluedorn? Well, since the Depression, Congress had set import quotas to protect American sugar farmers— It's included in a piece of legislation called the Sugar Act. Under those quotas, Bluedorn knew he'd be able to import a certain amount of sugar into the country from his farms in the Dominican Republic. Then, in the early 70s, there's a review of which countries should be allowed to sell their sugar and how much they could sell in the U.S. All the current quotas were on the line, including from the Dominican Republic. So there was a strong possibility his slice of the pie could become a sliver. To put it mildly, he's quite worried. So the mad Austrian lives up to his name and makes a bold move. He goes straight to the top. And as we all know, President Nixon would have made a great podcaster because he loved to record things. In February 1971, a sound activated taping system was installed in the Oval Office. Four months later, it would blink alive to the sound of Charles Bludhorn's voice. Mr. President, I know you're very busy. At least you you can see me. Uh, I received a letter. This is an actual recording of sugar lobbying happening in real time. A grower speaking directly to the president. Bloodhorn says he appreciates Nixon's time, then quickly moves on to a long and forceful monologue in which he implores Nixon not to decrease the sugar quotas for the Dominican Republic.
2: Let us be clear that we have a great sugar interest, and our hundred thousand shareholders would certainly be greatly affected to what happens to the Dominican Republic.
4: He suggests that the decrease could fuel anti-American pro-revolutionary sentiment in the DR. These
2: things in themselves are very small and they take a presidential.
4: The kind of catalyst that could cause a coup
2: d'etat.
4: Then Nixon gives an impassioned reply. I have no patience with those that are against the Dominican Republic. I have no patience with those that are against the Dominican Republic. They're against them, they consider a dictatorship. He's saying the State Department considers it a dictatorship. I don't give a damn what it is, I'm for But he doesn't give a damn. He wants the Dominican Republic treated fairly. I'm American Republic. Right,
2: they friends of the United States. That has got to be made clear to the people. Friends of the United States rewarded. Enemies of the United States be punished.
4: Then he says something truly astonishing. We've been shining a flashlight on the lobbying power of the sugar industry. In this tape, Nixon turns on a floodlight. The sugar
2: lobbyists. Uh, that's, the, as you know, the it's
7: the most effective, the best paid in the, in the world. And uh, they, they're murderous.
4: Yeah, you heard that right. They're murderous. He says he'll do his best to maintain the Dominican Republic's sugar quota. But it'll be tough because... Each
2: senator has got some lobbies
4: that he's pimping for. Each congressman and senator has some lobbies that he's pimping for, and that his influence in Congress is limited because of the enormous potency of the lobbyists. Charles Bluehorn thanks the president.
2: There's nothing I can say because I'm deeply appreciative... You said it all in a few words.
4: And what happened to those quotas? According to a report from the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research, the changes in the actual quotas for foreign countries were relatively modest in 1971, and the basic quota for the Dominican Republic was increased. In other words, following all this lobbying, the mad Austrian got what he wanted. The author of the report also wasn't sure, quote, how the Dominican Republic acquired a significant increase in its basic quota in the 1971 amendments to the Sugar Act, end quote. But it did say it's easy to suspect that favoritism had some role to play. But look, it doesn't end here. Because as the Watergate scandal begins to unfold, it's clear Nixon is trying to raise hush money. And in another recording we have a transcript for from June 23rd, 1971, the president is quoted as saying, anybody that wants to be an ambassador wants to pay at least $250,000. Then he brings up Charles Bluehorn, And while there's no evidence that Bluehorn took part in any quid pro quo or helped finance Nixon's Watergate defense, it looks very much like it was on Nixon's mind. Because he says, I want him to be bled for a quarter of a million too. More coming up after the break.
2: I got a phone call. Come up here immediately. I flew up there with my... uh... So
4: back to 1988 with Dexter Leighton. He's the Justice Department attorney on a one-man mission to save the Everglades from Big Sugar's pollution. And he's doing it by suing the Florida State Water Department. Now you get it. He's not only attempting to cross the state government but also the incredibly powerful sugar industry. So it's no surprise he's being told by his superiors to...
2: Withdraw the lawsuit. They just said, you're out of control. Use phrases like that. Withdraw the lawsuit.
5: But... They couldn't really stop him.
2: They weren't going to get it withdrawn any way you cut it.
4: Florida water officials are adamant. They're going to fight the suit. They say it's not our responsibility to make the sugar industry clean up their pollution. They begin to spend millions on lawyers to fight their case in court. And of course, there's pressure from the sugar industry, too.
5: They've tried behind the scenes to get the lawsuit dropped. They've done everything they could, sent armies of lobbyists to try to weaken the various laws that the
2: lawsuits pertain to. Oh, the squeeze was coming from Big Sugar with its influence. They thought they were going to get it dropped. They just thought for sure it would be uh, dropped.
5: But Dexter wouldn't budge. He was not going to drop the suit. The sugar industry has always dominated the politics of Florida. And they've always gotten their way in Washington as well. But the courtroom turned out to be a venue that they couldn't control.
4: The state government and Dexter are in court, locked in battle.
5: There was all kinds of debate over, you know, how many parts per billion of phosphorus were going to be legally acceptable. It dragged on and on
4: and became one of the most expensive environmental litigations America had ever seen. It cost Florida taxpayers millions to defend. Then in 1991, the whole case takes a dramatic turn— There's a new state governor in Florida. His name is Lawton Childs, and he's also a lawyer. And in an unprecedented turn of events, the governor decides to represent Florida State himself against Dexter Leighton and his team. When Governor Childs steps up in court to defend what's going on.
5: Lawton Childs argued, no, you can trust us. I've got a plan. We're going to restore about 25,000 acres of sugar fields. We're going to turn them into artificial wetlands. We don't need this federal oversight. We're here to do the right thing. But then lawyers on the other side point out, this plan is not enough. That it was just talk. As long as the water was dirty, the Everglades was going to have a problem. It's not looking good for the governor. So the hearing was going very badly for the state of Florida, and finally... Uh, Lawton Childs, who was a very smart politician and could always see when the writing was on the wall, he completely flipped 180 degrees. And he said, I'm here to surrender. I brought my sword. Who can I give my sword to? Jaws hit the floor of the courtroom. He
4: goes on to say, what I am asking is, let us use our troops to clean up the battlefield now to
5: make this water clean. That moment really set the stage for another 30 years so far and counting. Two months later, Dexter Leighton and Lawton Childs
4: announce a settlement. It sets in stone a strict phosphorus limit, the largest nutrient removal project in history. Dexter Leighton has beaten Big Sugar. The industry has to reduce their pollution.
8: Big Sugar has done a, a fairly energetic job of trying to polish and repair their image. And the fan holes, along with U.S. sugar and the other growers, have become born-again environmentalists.
5: You know, at the time, you had sugar runoff that was going into the Everglades at 50 parts per billion. Uh, Today, it's probably down to 20 parts per billion. Ultimately, it needs to go to 10 parts per billion. We're still just poisoning the Everglades just a lot less quickly. But there's been undeniable progress made. It was a win a rare
4: triumph over such a powerful industry. Their lobbying hadn't worked this time. So then people dared to go further, to take another shot.
7: Vice President Al Gore has a new plan to save the swamp in seven years.
5: The Clinton administration really turned its attention to the Everglades. Uh, It came up with this massive plan to restore the Everglades, which Al Gore personally announced.
7: Because what we are announcing is more than a restoration plan. It is, in its purest sense, an investment in Florida's future. 1.5 billion dollars. The largest, most costly ecological repair effort ever proposed in the United States.
5: 1996 was an election year. Florida was a swing state, even then. (laughs) Election years are very good for the Everglades. Politicians from both parties Um, seem to remember in election years that they are big fans of saving the Everglades because it's a national treasure.
4: So what was Al Gore suggesting? Part one, they would transform 100,000 acres of sugar fields into wetlands. Part two, a a penny-a-pound tax, a one-cent-per-pound tax on sugar produced on farms in the Everglades with the proceeds going to cleaning up the Everglades.
5: To the sugar industry, that penny-a-pound tax was a pure assault on its business model. If people voted for it, it's been estimated that sugar farmers would have had to
4: pay almost $1 billion over 25 years. One dramatic sugar industry statement from the Times said that there are few times in the life of a business when one event can have a literal life-or-death impact. Here's a pretty outraged sugar farmer.
7: Al Gore appears to be an avid environmentalist. He came down here to the Everglades and proposed a penny a pound tax on us which i believe is un-american
5: he really took a political stand on an environmental issue trying to make it clear that the clinton administration was on the side of the everglades and not on the side of the agricultural interests that were threatening the everglades unsurprisingly big sugar wasn't going to
4: sit back and take this They'd just been forced in court to reduce the phosphorus in their runoff. Now they might lose their land and face higher taxes too?
8: Big Sugar dumped tons and tons of money into advertising, donating to politicians who opposed it. They emptied the bank accounts to fight that.
1: Growers are outraged.
7: Save our job! Save our job! They fear the plan would cost them 40,000 jobs. How are we supposed to live and make a living Raising our families, putting kids to school and college, what are we supposed to do?
8: It was just bare-knuckle politics at the time, but it showed you what they could do, that industry could do, when they had their backs against the wall.
7: We're the only people right now that are paying for Everglades restoration to clean our water up. To single us out and blame us for all the problems in the Everglades is just patently wrong.
4: Needless to say, Al Gore's plan was getting a lot of attention, and not just from the sugar industry. Environmentalists were swamping the state with pro-tax messaging, too. There was even one wealthy individual who single-handedly contributed more than $8 million to the ballot initiative, Save Our Everglades. Millions and millions were being spent in this fight. And as the vote was nearing, opinion polls couldn't tell which way it would go. Would people vote for or against the tax? And it was all this that led to one of the most salacious moments in all of Big Sugar history.
5: This is a lead into the Monica stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
4: Because it was the same day that Vice President Al Gore made his Everglades restoration speech that President Bill Clinton was in the Oval Office. Carl Hyacin.
8: It was during this period where also the president was uh, seeing Monica Lewinsky, his intern, in the White House. Alfie was able to get a phone call through to the president when he was with Ms. Lewinsky.
4: Remember how the president interrupted breaking up with Monica Lewinsky to take a call from one Alfonso Van Hul of Palm Beach, Florida?
8: Alfie was able to get through to Clinton, and I'm quite sure that Pepe could get through to George Bush when he wanted to. It does show you what kind of access you get when you donate that kind of money to a candidate.
4: Remember, Alfie served as Bill Clinton's Florida co-chairman in 1992, hosted events for the former Arkansas governor. And if you dig through old newspapers, you can see he frequented pricey fundraising dinners for the Clintons. On one occasion, he donated $100,000 at a dinner attended by the likes of singer Jimmy Buffett, Don Johnson from Miami Vice, and pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. Anyway... We have no idea what Alfie spoke to Bill Clinton about when he called him in the Oval Office that day, but we do know that their conversation lasted more than 20
5: minutes. And it is probably not a coincidence that when the Clinton administration came out with their final plan for Everglades restoration, it included only 50,000 acres of sugar fields, not the 100,000 that Gore had promised. And that penny-a-pound
4: tax? After all the lobbying, the advertising, the avalanche of money, it was voted down and never implemented. Everglades' cleanup has been largely paid for by taxpayers. Bottom line, the sugar industry, the Hools, this time, they won. One other side note. Remember when George Bush was running for president against Al Gore in 2000 and there was a disputed result? Well, during that time when Gore and Bush were fighting to lay claim to the presidency, the Fon Hool's lawyer, Joe Clock, was one of those who fought in Bush's corner in the Supreme Court. Hmm. All this, Watergate, Clinton-Lewinsky, Gore's sugar tax, it might seem like ancient history. But Big Sugar is still able to pull the strings in political puppetry
5: today. The sugar industry is as powerful today as it's been for the last few decades. It still periodically takes out state legislators or even county commissioners who uh, try to mess with its business model. And it's really hard to imagine anything happening in the Florida legislature that doesn't have the seal of approval from Big Sugar.
4: I wanted to first ask you, have, have you ever been lobbied personally by somebody from the sugar lobby? Of course. Yeah. This is Florida State Senator Gary Farmer. He represents Eastern Broward County. He's also a lawyer himself. We wanted to talk to him to get an idea of what sugar lobbying is like today.
1: Lobbyists and interest groups abound <laughs> in Tallahassee. yeah, And they hire very effective and talented lobbyists uh, for sure.
4: And because we noted that recently he'd voted against legislation that would give farmers even more protections when lawsuits are brought against them. This could have to do with the annual burning of sugarcane, which reportedly releases harmful pollution in the air. In other words, if someone sued the sugar industry for making them sick as a result of the smoke, the sugar industry could be protected from these kind of claims. Yet somewhat ironically, Senator Farmer voted against the farmers.
1: As an attorney and as the son of a judge, the judicial branch to me is the great equalizer. It's supposed to be the area where David can take on Goliath and and win. I'm never in favor of protections that amount to uh, immunity or a get out of jail free card just because you're a wealthy industry.
4: But Senator Farmer was the only one in the House, Democrat or Republican, to vote against it. So, why were you the only? No vote.
1: <laughs> that's a that's a great question. Either just a misunderstanding or ignorance a, uh, as to the effect of that legislation.
4: Option one: the other senators didn't understand the legislation. Option two:
1: a just slavish devotion to one particular industry or lobbyist.
4: Option three:
1: or uh, trading a vote for for something else. <laughs> Those are really the only three possibilities in my mind that would account for it.
4: As of recording, Senator Farmer is working to repeal this legislation, something he's sure the sugar industry isn't happy about. Lobbyists even called him up after he filed the bill.
1: I'm sure they're working uh, (laughs) feverishly to try to make sure it doesn't get agended or, or heard.
4: You know, Senator Farmer isn't against lobbyists per se, He sees thousands of bills every year and can't be an expert on all of them.
1: The the reality is, each of us is just a product of our own environment and education and upbringing. If you're just looking to understand and learn about an issue so you can make an informed decision and vote, the lobbyists can actually provide a benefit where, you know, the process gets a little sideways is when you're not looking to vote just on the merits of the issue but you're only looking to support a friend who's been good to you or has raised money for you in the past. That's, you know, where the system begins to to break down.
4: All this brings to mind a quote, a kind of mantra he thinks politicians should live by.
1: Someone famously said years ago that if you can't take their money, drink their liquor, and vote against them, you shouldn't be in this business. <laughs> and I think too many of my colleagues don't understand that.
4: That quote's been attributed to former California State Treasurer Jesse Marvin Unruh, also known as Big Daddy Unruh, and he was talking about lobbyist gifts. Oh, and the actual quote is somewhat ruder. So let's head back to the Everglades. Because, you know, it's easy to look at these examples and think the industry is rotten. But Michael Grunwald says when it comes to the Everglades, at least, it's more nuanced than that.
5: Big sugar is all often caricatured as this kind of evil empire and it's a little understandable uh, because they do wield such outsized political influence Um, but i do think it's important to remember that first of all they're in the everglades because the federal government wanted them there and in the last few decades as they've gotten more environmentally conscious they've done a better job of trying to manage their impact on the environment
8: the most damage to the Everglades by pollution it hasn't been done by agriculture, although it's substantial. Most of it's been done by overdevelopment. It was from cities, it was from municipalities, it was from highway systems. Big sugar, I think, in some ways became, it, it, it was an easy target, but it also it simplified what was really much a much more complicated assault on the Everglades.
4: Actually, Senator Farmer told us about a study which showed that, yeah, there are many different things causing pollution in the Everglades.
1: For example, several years ago, I know that when they conducted studies of the water in Lake Okeechobee, um, that among the top 10 chemicals they found above allowed or preferred levels were Prozac and Splenda. Um, huh. And and so the the presence of those chemicals in Lake Okeechobee confirms that we've got a major issue with leaky septic tanks.
4: In other words, people were taking antidepressants and using sugar substitutes. And all that sweet prosaic waste was being flushed right into the wetlands, into the habitats of some now pretty serene-looking catfish. Betty Osceola still lives in the Everglades National Park. And she has a wish list of things that could improve the Everglades, including, one, all the farms, whether it's sugar or cattle or citrus, should be following a mandatory system where they're reducing their runoff. Two, stop urban areas flushing pollution into the Everglades. And three, in an ideal world, Betty would like to see all the canal systems reconnected so the Everglades would flow like it originally did.
6: But the main thing is for people to understand It's not okay to hide your pollution, because that's what they're doing. When they send it to the Everglades, they're sending their pollution elsewhere, and in their minds, they've done something. And also to value the Everglades for what it is, a, a living, breathing system.
4: She hasn't lost hope. Betty thinks back on one of the last times she saw a Florida panther in more recent years. She was in an area in the Everglades National Park that the Miccosukee use for
6: ceremonies. And I remember the kids were all playing. And I remember my mom, she said, stop. And she said, there's a panther walking up. Don't move. Just be still. This female panther just walked by. She didn't look at us. She didn't try to growl at us. She just like moseyed on by, not in a hurry and just walked past us. A beautiful creature. You know, my initial thought was like, wow. And then in my head, I kept telling myself, don't move, don't move. (laughs) Remain calm, you know, cause you don't want to do anything to frighten it. But I I was just in awe of being in a position to see something like that, that close. I felt hopeful that, okay, the Panther is still here. I'm like, oh, you still exist. You're still here.
4: Michael and Carl do have one important takeaway. Okay, so Al Gore lost to Big Sugar. That was in the political arena. But Dexter Leighton did come out on top, in court. So there's something to be learned from that. In the end, what went down in the Everglades shows that the sugar industry is not invincible.
5: The story of the Everglades shows that the sugar industry can be beaten in court. Well,
8: they've been been beaten.
4: So next time on Big Sugar, we're back in court with some lawyers trying to do exactly that. Beat the sugar industry on legal grounds. It's the final showdown in the decades-long class action this podcast is following, the Osceola case. The Osceola case was on life support. They didn't have any money, and Dave's practice was in shambles. But new evidence might turn things around. We found the proof that was just amazing.
8: Yeah, it was definitely, it was very cool finding it. Very cool. Up to that point, we had no idea that anything like that existed.
4: This was going to be a case we should clearly win. Could they pull it off? That's next time on Big Sugar. Big Sugar is produced by Imagine Audio, Weekday Fun Productions, and Novel for iHeartMedia. The series is hosted by me, Celeste Headley. Big Sugar is produced by Jeff Eisenman at Weekday Fun Productions. It's executive produced by Kara Welker, Nathan Clokey, and Marie Brenner. Story editor and executive producer is Joe Wheeler. The researcher is Nadia Mehdi. Production management from Cherie Houston, Frankie Taylor, and Charlotte Wolfe. Our fact checker is Sona Avakian. Field reporting by Amber Amortegi. Sound design and mixing by Eli Block, Naomi Clark, and Daniel Kempson. Original music composed by Troy McCubbin at Alloy Tracks. Additional music by Nicholas Alexander. Special thanks to Alec Wilkinson, author of the book Big Sugar, and Stephanie Black, director of the documentary H2 Worker. Big Sugar is based on the Vanity Fair article in The Kingdom of Big Sugar by Marie Brenner.